Welcome back, Q. Before, I'm not even going to say my opening line, welcome back to the Web3 show, because it's welcome back to Q. How do you feel, sir? It's good to have you back with us. Guys, when, when I say I didn't open my laptop for six days, I did not open my laptop for six days. And when I did, it was to Bitcoin reversing, and it was amazing. <laughs> it sounds like, sounds like a dream. No, it was a, it was a needed treat, a needed getaway. Um, yeah, first bit of holiday in a couple of months. So definitely needed the break from the markets. So yeah, glad I got some time off. Well, we're not giving you a break tonight with the, the market updates. John's quick, quick one. Interesting. Interesting. I wanted to ask, how did it sound listening to the episode from last week without, uh, without yourself in it? Did me and Luca hold up the, hold up the fort okay? Yeah, I think you guys did a pretty good job. Um, you know, there's always room for improvement, but <laughs> no, I, I won't lie. I was, I was I was salty that I wasn't there. I was actually upset that I couldn't join you guys. Um, but yeah, I think you guys did an excellent job. Well, look, good to have you back. Uh, welcome everyone to episode 13 of the Web3 show. As always, bringing you your guy with trad, uh, your guy with trad fire, your guy in TradFi, making trades all the time, but the the guy making more trades is Q. Galactic Q, back with red pulls in hand, as uh, you've just heard, he's been back back from holiday. Um, boys, let's dive in. Action-packed episode today. We need a recap. Uh, Sailor interviewing Jack, the wormhole exploit. But first, we're going to give Q his market updates. What's happening in the markets, Q? Uh, it's been up and down, sideways, like I think it's been a bit crazy and uh, we need we need your alpha here. What's happening? Well, one thing I'm just going to say outright is we're not out of the woodworks yet. Um, you know, the, the, the interesting piece of sentiment of the market is two weeks ago, the low 40Ks was the doomsday level and today it's the euphoric. We're going back into a bull market level. Um, so the first thing I just need to say straight out is sentiment can't just change that quickly because we've seen a little bit of a bounce. Um, so while I am feeling bullish on the reversal, we haven't confirmed it yet. Um, we're getting a lot of bullish confirmation, um, but we're still looking for the three-day confirmation on the MACD. Um, we're still looking for a couple other macro indicators to confirm this trend reversal, and that's all going to come largely with one retest. Um, of the low 40, high 30K level and a bounce from there to push to mid 50s, I would say, um, considering that we've got our bull market resistance zone, which is your 20-week SMA and 21-week EMA, uh, sitting between 47 to 53. And we've also got strong resistance zones between 50,500 and 53,000. So if we can push through those, uh, we'll definitely see a wick up to 55K. Um, but what comes after that is probably what's going to scare most. And what we have seen on a macro level is we put in a low, um, you know, around uh, September last year. Then we pushed to new all-time highs of $69,000 approximately in November last year. And we have put in a lower low. And generally how price action works is putting in the lower low means that we put in a bearish trend reversal. And it's very unlikely that we go back to all-time highs from here. What would make more sense to confirm this trend reversal would be a, a move to 55K, put in a lower high from its all-time high, and then 
shift down for another retest at the low 40s, putting in a higher low. And at that point, do we know if we bounce there, we're confirming a true trend reversal and that will send us into the next leg of Bitcoin to 100K, uh, possibly by the end of the year. So when it comes short term, I'm expecting a pullback. We're topping out on all our RSIs on the daily. So we do need some form of a retest at the low 40s. Um, uh, when it comes to medium term, I'm expecting a strong push to the mid 50s before a bigger rejection. And when it comes to long term, I think we're going to see a bullish run later this year to new all-time highs um, once we get that confirmed bounce. And Q, that scenario you just laid out, um, you know, to get the next leg up to the to the new all-time high, you you were basically saying that's unlikely to happen. You said there's still more pain to come, basically. Yeah, I I but, right. uh, yes, I, I think we've we've felt most of the pain already. Um, but you know, there, there's going to be a lot of volatility, and and the very interesting and clear indicator at this point is the trading volume. So what you would notice is if you compare the trading volume today and over the last three, four months since we made all-time highs and compare that to the famous Wyckoff distribution that we had before the May crash last year, the biggest volume candles of this current period do not even eclipse 60% of the lowest volume candles over that period last year. And that just shows that there's no retail, there's, there's significantly less buyers in the market. And I think that retail will step back in when we see that bullish confirmation and start pushing to those mid fifties again, we're going to start seeing a bit of froth re-enter the market. And it's at that point, we're going to get that next shake out because we know that institutions, we know that whales love to concentrate FOMO and, you know, cause the retail to be their exit liquidity. So the guys that have been getting in now, um, I would say, be patient, wait for the pullback. We will get it. Get your entries in DCA. These next, Two to four weeks are your time to DCA into the market. Get open some decent positions in sound, stable L1s with tight stop losses. Um, open a big Bitcoin position if you can anywhere in the 30Ks because I do think we're going to see a bigger rally there and just use the retail as your exit liquidity when the time comes. Love that. Quickly touch on NFTs uh, for a minute because obviously we saw them absolutely cooking over the past month. What's happening there and what's your brief outlook yeah i think i think you know um you know in our in our pre pre-episode discussion our guy tradfi brought up an interesting tweet um you know talking about the oversupply of nft projects and you know the the stagnation in actual nft buyers um so we we, we are hitting a phase in the market where things are overly bullish there's clear top signals in the nft space nfts have been running for the last i would say eight six to eight weeks um, so right now, what we're noticing already is a lot of NFT projects are having massive pullbacks. Um, and it's just those very top blue chips that are having less of a pullback. But I think that time will come as well. We've seen a really big run up and it would make sense, especially if ETH starts rallying again um, with the Lumine, you know, I couldn't call it ETH 2.0 again, but with the Lumine upgrade, um, you know, we could see ETH at any point explode. We're currently breaking macro trend. Uh, well, downtrend. So, I mean, a move for ETH. And if we get an announcement and NFTs are crashing, we know that liquidity is flooding back. So, yeah, I think NFTs are looking a bit rocky. I'd be hesitant opening into any of them now. Wait a couple of weeks, you're probably going to get a much better entry. 
to the audience, go watch episode 12. Uh, your guy in TradFi and I, well, he mainly called it the, the top signal in NFTs with uh, Paris Hilton entering the metaverse. So uh, do with that what you will. But Jesus, good to have a good to have a Q market update again. Um, I'm acting like you've been gone for like a year, John's, but I guess that the the episode with you gone felt like that. So yeah, good to have you. Good to have you back. So brief segue then into the first small segment before we get to the wormhole. Um, like sort of tying into obviously the market update. We're in a bearish trend. Johnson, like uh, something I was thinking about, will all will all eyes sort of be on Bitcoin? You know, in the next few weeks, because obviously that that's your blue chip crypto asset. It's always the leader. Um, you know, the the first one to go. It it uh, everything else follows. Um, and obviously, in the context of uh, Michael Saylor's uh, Bitcoin for corporations he just had over the past week. I wanted to ask you, what is your outlook for Bitcoin in particular? And what I said about it being the leading indicator is that, do you believe that is that going to change? Maybe, you know, flipping to ETH um, uh, as we go into the segment, just recapping uh, Michael Saylor's uh, uh, Bitcoin fiasco. Yeah, well, I mean, just to just to look on the technical front again, um, you know, Bitcoin is definitely the trade right now. Um, you know, it, it, the DCA trade, I mean. Um, so if you're looking to purchase Bitcoin for that medium term push, Bitcoin will be the leading indicator. Um, its dominance is currently ranging. But what we are noticing is that the range is getting smaller. And with this, we've seen over the past couple of days that Bitcoin had a what is it, 15% breakout, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but we saw coins like Phantom, we saw coins like AVAX, um, you know, Solana, and a bunch of these other projects up from 20%, uh, or even some even 30%. Uh, Matic, I think, up 28% uh, since the Bitcoin breakout. So what we are seeing is altcoins are largely outperforming BTC on the ROI front. But if we look at the macro charts, not a single altcoin, well, generally speaking, majority of the altcoins have put in lower highs on their trends, where Bitcoin has now put in a higher low, a higher high, uh, pushing 45.6 versus its previous high at 44,000. So we've got a higher high on BTC indicating a potential for a, a micro trend reversal, um, but altcoins are getting rejected at significant trends and putting in lower highs. So it's a clear indicator that, yes, altcoins might have a stronger bounce, but Bitcoin is going to be the bigger play. Um, so I do think Bitcoin is the play to be in right now, um, especially if you're going to be holding for a couple of weeks to a few months. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jonty, but I mean, we are seeing a flight to value in uh, ETH Altpairs 2, are we not? Yes. We are. So so there's been a lot of interesting trading happening around the AVAX ETH pair as well. I know there's a lot of attention on that across across the board on socials. I know Benjamin Cohen made a pretty interesting video analyzing the, the ETH uh, alt pair. And what we are seeing is a lot of big L1 projects are actually looking really strong versus their ETH pairs. Um, so, but, but I think that's going to change very quickly you know, all we need is a date to be announced for the ETH upgrade. 
and that's going to reverse very fast. And I think ETH will then take back the limelight. But fact of the matter is Bitcoin is the strength at the moment. So so then just, just uh, working on that, did you guys watch um, Jack's uh, interview with Michael Saylor from Bitcoin for Corporations? Yeah. Yes. I, I, all, I, all I can say is Jack's beard is glorious. <laughs> and how cool is that Satoshi shirt? I need to get some of that swag. Literally, I thought about trying to find where I could order one. <laughs> but I found I found it quite interesting. Um, I, I guess you know the, all, all three of us are obviously heavily involved in buy, and we're interested in not only Bitcoin and like watching, you know, two two people like that, two visionaries really having a conversation about Bitcoin, being so bullish on it and bullish on the ecosystem and talking about everything else that's being built within and on top of Bitcoin. You know, you have Lightning, uh, you've had the the Taproot upgrade and just all these companies basically plugging into that network. You know, you've got MicroStrategy basically becoming a Bitcoin ETF block building, um, you know, Jack's company building products around it. Um I mean, it almost makes me makes me think like, and I want to get your guys' thoughts on this. Like, is is Bitcoin going to come out again and just be that the the one and only you know that that sort of people go back to and be like, hey, we thought this thing did nothing for a while, but actually turns out we should have been listening to Jack and Michael Saylor all along because you hear how Jack talks about Bitcoin and how he he. Uh, he, he he was mining his own Bitcoin and then he he transferred it to his Moon Wallet, bought Tuckers, and is you know using Lightning and you've got the Strike integration on Twitter for for bit for tipping with Bitcoin. So just I guess it's just a question, you know, do we think? What are your guys' thoughts on on that? That the attention over a couple of years as Bitcoin rallies and gets to a hundred k, gets to one hundred fifty, two hundred, does the attention go back to it and actually? sort of could it win the game at the end of the day is there a game to be won i know it's quite vague but maybe uh your guy in trad five what's uh what are your thoughts luca look i i think there are clear indications that we're going to see value flows back into bitcoin i think broadly speaking we've been in a speculative bubble with um altcoins i think you know we we touched on the collapse um, of Wonderland. Uh, previously, you know, we've we've got speculative projects which can attract billions of dollars um, very quickly, uh, and I think you 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 will see a shift with the tightening environment into kind of more of an investment case, and Bitcoin definitely is that. Bitcoin is a baseline technology. When you when you bet on Bitcoin, you're not betting on a team necessarily. You're investing in a technology. Um, and I think that the value of that, as people come and recognize this, you know, as more infrastructure is developed, kind of spearheaded by visionaries like Sailor, like Dorsey, um, I think I think it's going to become very clear and we're going to see strong flows of capital from deadweight cryptocurrencies um, into Bitcoin. I'm, I'm betting on, on a Bitcoin resurgence, particularly given the challenging environment ahead i mean if you think that crypto is is risk on right i mean i've, I've seen arguments made that bitcoin 
um, could could actually become a risk off asset in some sense. It's it's an interesting position, and I guess if you take the perspective of global uncertainty, particularly also related to sovereign currencies, um, I think the investment case for Bitcoin uh, stands strong. So, if we see use of platforms, products built on Bitcoin technology accelerating, if El Salvador succeeds with their volcano bonds, um, that, that'll be really interesting kind of litmus test um, for, for appetite um, in, in that space. Like it, it's, it's going to be an interesting time ahead and I'm definitely betting on Bitcoin. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's fascinating as well when you watch the public company spectrum with, you know, obviously Michael, um, MicroStrategy, uh, Sailor's company, just leading the way buying tons and tons and tons of Bitcoin. I think they now nearly have 125,000 BTC on their balance sheet, um, obviously acquired through operating cash flow, debt, equity, basically any way Sailor can get his hands on cash, he's bought Bitcoin with it. You've got Tesla with nearly $2 billion worth of Bitcoin on their balance sheet. I guess it only takes you know another big tech company, maybe Apple. People have said Apple after that interview with Tim Cook, um, maybe Amazon, just to plow, you know, one percent of their treasury into it. And I mean, one percent of of theirs is like a comfortable two billion, um, generally. Yeah, I mean, I would I would say that maybe the West is is less relevant in the long term bull case for Bitcoin. How so? I think particularly, I think particularly environments with stressed sovereign currencies. Think of Argentina, kind of generally currencies in South America, Africa, um, maybe even Asia. Broadly speaking, um, you know, currencies which are weak against the dollar will be weak against Bitcoin. And I think generally in these economies where you know you don't have as much, uh, don't, you don't have as many checks and balances, right, on the printing press. Um, I think Bitcoin emerges as a clear kind of um, safe haven. So with that, Luca, that's going to be that's going to be a government, say the Argentinian government, like plowing, plowing money into Bitcoin to. Well, no, the, the citizens as they lose faith. Okay, okay, fair enough. Right, be, be, because 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 it's a baseline technology. It's just a permissionless network. Um, I mean, Jack touched on that in the interview with Sailor. It was really interesting. It's kind of like. You know, initially when you roll out and you kind of got to plug into fiat systems, it's a headache when you're expanding your business in other kind of uh, states, right, or countries. Um, if, if you've got this permissionless Bitcoin network, it, it, you can basically instantly deploy uh, and, and people, broadly speaking, can, can plug into that platform product uh, seamlessly and transact. So let me ask you a question which is it's quite an interesting thought experiment as well in itself, and then we'll move on. Do you think it's going to be easier for investors, maybe in the Western world, not necessarily just the population you were touching on now, to buy MicroStrategy as essentially an artificial or like a synthetic Bitcoin spot ETF? Because I think Saylor's already spoken about it. He's saying, you know, the, none of these spot ETFs are getting approved in the US, only futures, which is like a complete, you know, BS product, in my opinion. Um, so buy MicroStrategy shares, I've got tons of exposure. I mean, way overcapitalized into Bitcoin, like 
I don't have the the direct data in front of me, but I'm pretty sure the amount of Bitcoin he has on his treasury like dwarfs his, or is at least on par with his um with his uh, analytics business. So, do you think that's an avenue? Like, if you're an institutional investor, Luca, would you look at MicroStrategy as your spot ETF to get exposure to Bitcoin? Say you're running a hedge fund right now. I don't think it's that simple. Um, I, I think that. There are different options. I mean, you can bet there's a there's a Bitcoin miners ETF. I think they got approved recently. Um, was in the process of being approved. You've got generally some attempts at an index of the cryptocurrency sector. Um, I, I, I I can't really say. I, I would say that it, it would be a, a substitute. Yeah, I mean, or it just depends, I guess, whether that firm is willing to self custody or or go with maybe Gemini or Coinbase's institu- institutional product to actually, you know, custody on their behalf. Um, interesting question. I just uh, I, I just read it and I was like, it's actually fascinating where MicroStrategy can actually, um, you know, it could mimic at one point, like if he gets enough Bitcoin on his balance sheet. Um, Q, what are your thoughts? If you're a hedge fund manager right now, would you... Would you be using MicroStrategy as a Bitcoin ETF? No, I, I agree. I agree with uh, with Steiner. I mean, I think <clears throat> I think what what he's trying to do, like um, you know, when it compares to few, what what the current options are, I think you know it's definitely their strong competitor in gaining exposure to BTC as a as an institution, um, because we know that that self custody in, in cryptocurrency is a bit like the Wild West and you know, you, you would much rather if you're dealing with hundreds of millions and billions of dollars, just hand it off, off to someone else to, to look after for you. So I do think that that micro strategy with what they want to do with their, their let's call it spot ETF, is very interesting, but diversification is key. Um, so it definitely wouldn't be the 100% allocation of my BTC exposure if I was managing a hedge fund. Fair enough. It's definitely an open-ended question. Let's leave it at that. Let's dive into the main the the main topic for for today. Uh, the wormhole network, which uh, uh, basically houses the the portal bridge between Solana and Ethereum, last week uh, on Feb the second, um, was exploited through a signature verification vulnerability in the wormhole network. Um, I'm reading directly off uh, Wormhole's Medium page. They, they've they uh, published an incident report. Um, 120,000 wrapped Ether on Solana, which turns out to be in excess of like $300 million, something crazy. And they basically drained it from the bridge and or, or they were able to um, bridge 93,000 uh, of those tokens back to Ethereum. And this, on the face of it, it seems like oh, just a just a sort of another another old hack in crypto. But first of all, I think the size of it. Uh, I, I heard from the the Bankless podcast. I think that it was maybe the second or third largest hack in crypto. I could be corrected on that. But also just the fact that, and um, I'm going to lay up uh, my guy in TradFi to to uh, help me on this because I'm no DeFi master. He's the real DeFi. Jedi, that with the sort of loss of all of these wrapped, 
this wrapped ether on Solana, it leaves the whole ecosystem completely sort of vulnerable and essentially uh, insolvent because you have all of these all of these tokens or assets locked up in Solana DeFi protocols that are backed by these wrap, this wrapped ETH that has come over from the wormhole or portal bridge. And essentially once that, once that goes away, like we sort of, sort of like similar how we spoke about it last week, where you have a token that is uncollateralized. It has no more intrinsic value. So stepping back a bit before we dive into the actual incident, First of all, Luca, correct me if I if anything I said there was was uh, wrong, uh, and also just maybe touch on briefly explaining what a bridge is and what wrapped tokens are, just so people can understand how this actually works, and and maybe just tying in how the Solana ETH bridge actually actually works in practice. Sure, I think the key distinction is between a native and non-native asset. So the, an, an easy example here is actually USDC. So USDC is backed by dollars. Um, and that backing process happens through an issuance effectively. And that issuance is to, in con to a contract address. And USDC is natively issued on kind of a subset of the blockchain space. Right, so it's it's not natively issued on all chains. So you you have this you have this situation where if you're a naive user, um, you will see the you will see USDC everywhere, and it will always have the same logo and look the same and you know work the same. Right, it's a stablecoin. Um, but what can happen is if if it's not actually issued on the chain where you're using it. Um, you're actually not using backed USDC. The safety of USDC is effectively transferred through a bridge. So if you, for, so for example, USDC on, fan, on, on Phantom is not native. So if you're using USDC on Phantom, you're using bridged USDC. And what that effectively means is that this, this USDC has been brought through an intermediary. You can't deposit phantom USDC straight to circle to redeem dollars. So, so what does that mean in practice? So basically you've got an intermediary and, and, and basically that, that's an attack vector. Um, and which, we, which we saw here, obviously yeah, right. wormhole being the, being the intermediary gets attacked. Exactly. Exactly. So, so, so what, what it looks like in practice is basically when you bridge tokens, um, I mean, there, there are different ways of doing this, and it, it's one of the more complicated um, protocols, <laughs> bridge, bridge protocols. I mean, you're dealing, you're dealing with at, at least two chains. Um, but, but what it looks like in practice, for example, is, is you, could, you could come to the bridge protocol and you could basically deposit a um, you could deposit Solana USDC and bridge it to Phantom and effectively the bridge mints tokens on the Phantom side, which, which have a different contract address to the tokens on the Solana side. So that they are actually different tokens. Um, and, and basically the other, the tokens, the other tokens are either burnt or locked up uh, or, or kind of processed in some other um, 
some other mechanism, but effectively you, you swap them out, right? right. And, and you can and you can generally swap them back as well. That that shouldn't be a problem. But you know, some bridges are do have liquidity issues at times, um, and what can what can actually happen is there, there might not be sufficient liquidity to bridge your tokens back, basically. Uh, so you could be trapped in non-native USDC um, if the bridge fails, for example, it doesn't have sufficient liquidity. Uh, right. It's it's a really complicated topic, but basically the naive user will generally um, not be aware of this. Yeah. But so then just just clear up something for me because I was reading this. I'm trying to wrap my head around it. Um, pun intended. Uh, <laughs> joking. That was a bad joke. Um, <laughs> <laughs> basically obviously with this attack on the the solana uh, this happened on the solana side right the attacker it says here per the wormhole page that the attacker minted 120,000 wormhole wrapped ether on solana right but now to me minting means creating new uh you know new tokens essentially and and bankless also mentioned this that obviously if you had the money printer at the fed you could print new dollars and essentially just run away with those so but then you obviously have this whole collateral issue so what my question was were these new tokens or wrapped ether tokens on solana that the attacker created and then bridged those back and just disappeared with or did they actually drain the bridge of the tokens which were backing um, assets yeah. in the DeFi protocols on Solana, which then because that's it's just a distinction I wanted to make. Yeah. It's a confusion point, Luca. Uh, so I think jump is a jump crypto that jump capital in, jump, jump capital capital. They they came in and uh, if I remember the statute correctly, they basically refilled the ETH contract, they yeah. deposited it back in so that it was backed one-to-one. -one. So in this case, it, it was probably a setup of you brought your ETH to the bridge, it was locked up, and you received wrapped ETH on the other end. And if you wanted to get back onto, if you wanted to get native ETH again, you would deposit it and then uh, receive your native ETH from from the, the liquidity on the actual bridge. Right. Okay. Cool. But so then, Luca, let's dive into your tweet because you you made a great tweet when this top when this uh, whole thing broke, and basically, just maybe you wanted you to because uh, I've read it a couple of times and I wanted you to just expand your on your thoughts on this. Um, basically, you were saying that this whole thing summarized, and I think also we'll touch on uh, Vitalik uh, who made a post on reddit just about uh the the risks inherent in cross chain and, and bridges and everything uh, but we'll touch on that next you said this is risk inherent within bridges within a multi-chain future the differentiation of native versus non-native tokens particularly as regards stable coins will be the will be key in any risk management framework now you touched on the native versus non-native tokens part and with the stable coins part in your example but the risk management framework part, how do you see that playing out? And, and maybe you could just expand on what you, what you were saying there. Yeah, maybe with a practical example. So um, Sabre protocol as a stable swap um, 
protocol in Solana. Um, and I, I was kind of getting involved, providing liquidity. And um, what they actually do, um, this is the first time kind of bridge tokens came to the fore. So the, before I really started using Sabre, it was, it, it was not clear to me um, really the extent to which we use um, wrapped versions of tokens, basically non-native tokens. But they, they clearly display next to the logo whether it's bridged or not. And basically, what I, by, by logo, I just mean the symbol of the stablecoin. So if you actually go on, on SAB, I think there's like 50, 40 stablecoins, different types of, of uh, wrapped USDC, UST, etc., uh, USDT, derivatives thereof. Um, and, and basically, they display if it's non-native. And I realized... <laughs> I just at some point I realized that basically all my liquidity positions there were in some way exposed to bridge risk. They're all wrapped tokens, um, and so if if you look at kind of just generally any sort of stablecoin activities, yield generating activities, if you're if you're using non-native tokens, there's another dimension of risk that you need to consider effectively, right? In this case, you know if you were stuck with ETH, you got lucky uh, because uh, some market maker came in and, and footed the bill for the hack, right? Um, but you really could have lost everything. Um, so you're not only exposed to smart contract risk in the actual protocol you're using. If you're using wrapped tokens, you're exposed to bridge risk. And, I mean, does that then, um, obviously, because then uh, Vitalik wrote a, a Reddit uh, thread and uh, basically, you know, touched on this, the same thing, just with the extent of assets that could be at risk here. Could this potentially become like a systemic risk to your ecosystem? You know, if, if you have, say there was way more, way more, maybe there was lucky with the worm, wormhole or, you know, that maybe that the attacker didn't get uh, enough, uh, obviously ETH, um, wrapped ETH on Sol, or maybe that maybe it was a function that there wasn't enough in like enough enough liquidity in the bridge. But I mean, mm. could this could this become basically a, a contagion effect where basically the, the like crippling the ecosystems between the between the two bridges? De definitely, I think. Um, I, I mean, it obviously depends on the size of the bridge. Wormhole that was a big hack. Um, but 300 million still disappears into Ethereum's market cap. I think if we look at smaller, um, smaller layer ones, potentially more reliant on smaller kind of bridge liquidity pools, then yeah, I think there, there could be a significant risk. And I mean, you've got to think of the knock-on effect as well, right? So if, if ETH on Solana collapses, then all the liquidity pools that consist at least to some extent of ETH collapse, right? There will be secondary effects. You know, you might have liquidations which start cascading because this thing goes to zero. You know, people suddenly, uh, <laughs> people suddenly uh, can't pay back their debt. Um, so I think the, this is, we, we can't understate the systemic risks actually. Um, and I think, I think the first part there maybe um, would be just to raise awareness. You know, actually like what Sabre protocol did where you could clearly see what type 
of stablecoin you were using, was it a derivative um, or not? I, I think that would be really helpful, right? I think people will think twice when they see, you know, a really high APY in a stable pool, but they've got to use some random bridged, twice, th <laughs> twice, thrice bridged uh, USDC derivative. Uh, yeah. For sure. And I mean, you made an interesting point about how, uh, you know, 300 million into ETH market cap currently, you know, is sort of a sort of a drop in the ocean. Johns, let me ask you this question. Obviously, we know that the this hack happened on the Solana side of the bridge. And I know the bankless guys mentioned that, you know, that, that this was in some sense a Solana problem. And obviously, Solana has been coming under a lot of heat in the in the last few weeks with you know congestion on the network and now this and a bunch of other things that are sort of invalidating the thesis to an extent. Um, and I know you're a lot, you're an old uh, old time Solana bull, so I just wanted to challenge your thesis here. Does something like this, if it was a Solana problem, um, because you had like um, the guys from Multicoin Capital and Anatoly, the the, the founder of Solana saying, oh, you know, uh, allegedly they were saying, you know, oh, okay, well, this is an issue, but, you know, we're still in beta testing on the network and everything. But I mean, the bankless guy said it, 300 million, <laughs> like ha having exposure of 300 million on a network is not, you can't be in beta testing, or you can't be like still testing out your network, like that's fully, you know, you're fully exposed. Does everything that like this and everything that's been happening with Solana like invalidate the thesis what are your what are your thoughts on the outlook of it yeah well just to quickly touch on the beta beta version of solana so basically the team is calling it beta to protect themselves against things like this um solana is actually a full mainnet and you know a lot of people still run the argument yeah it's beta yeah it's beta but john is that fair though surely that's like that doesn't sound too fair right like no, people lost 300 million worth of eth no, it's, it's not fair at all. Um, and the thing is, I think Solana blew up too quickly. It grew too quickly. And, you know, it had a lot of speed and scalability at a time that people really demanded that because Ethereum just, you know, priced significant people out the, out the market. And I remember the first time, you know, a guy in TradFi introduced me to Saber and I saw that I could get like 80% you know, APY on my Luna with no, you know, impermanent loss on Solana. I was like, this is crazy. You know, DeFi boomed. And I think it all just happened too fast and too quick, you know, and they just never ended up dropping the name of beta because I think the team inherently knew that there are still bugs and issues to be worked out or kinks in the armor. And when you've got complex systems like wormhole bridges and things like that, these are all very innovative technologies. But when you base these incredible, innovative, complex technologies on a base technology that is still so-called in beta, you know, you can't, you can't really expect it to be sound. Like you have to expect like risk. You, you have to, because, the team is not confident enough to remove the name beta. That says something about a project and how early it Absolutely. is in development. So I mean, there's a yeah, there's a base layer, there's a base layer of risk already, and then you're layering on 
through the bridge another another big Johnny, inherent quick risk. Question, quick question for you. I'm, I'm on the all bridge coin gecko page. So all bridge is one of the protocols uh, which which is is quite prevalent um, on Solana. They've got a current market cap of seven point five million dollars. Just going to refresh this again. This is real. <laughs> Basically. The total bridge, and I, and I guess my question is, how does this make you feel? The total bridge to date is five point three billion dollars. It's you, you know you know what this this kind of points to is it it points to how much of a wild west crypto currently is. You know there there are so many degenerates. I want to call them. We're all fucking degenerates, guys. We've all done our degenerate form of, and I know I know five the billion. sellers. The sellers buying, the sellers buying a dollar of Shiba Inu every time we get a like on an episode. You know, we all did Phantom, bro, Phantom. <laughs> but Phantom. I think, I, I think, I think people ate into the narrative of Solana because we had this boom in DeFi, then we had this boom in NFTs, then we had this boom in GameFi, all on Solana, all within the space of a year. And it, it's just too quick. And you've got protocols. I mean, that makes me angry to know that a TBL project of 7 million has had over 5 billion bridged across. It's scary. It is so scary. And you've got a team still saying, yeah, we're in beta. And listen, I've been in Solana since a dollar. I've been here for a long time, a very, very long time. And I've followed the project for a very long time and the development of it. And right now, I don't have any Solana bags. And as much as I love Solana as a project, I think it's five, 10 years away from reaching its full potential. And I think there's still a lot of kinks in the armor to be worked out. And John's mentioning your zero bags of Solana. It's worth also mentioning that we know that this is one of the most centralized assets and ecosystems in terms of venture capital funding. There was that huge investment by Multicoin Capital in the early days. A bunch of other VCs have pounded into it. Our boys at, at the All In Pod have have pounded into it. They have Solana coming out their nose, like it's you know, and I guess this has all been amp- this all gets amplified with that side of it where there are serious bags being held in from a VC standpoint. Um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong there, but that also you know layers on another risk when they just dis- when when they decide to dump it'll dump hard 100 percent. i mean you know the, the the way i'm approaching cryptocurrency now is you know what is going to be what's going to stand the test of time you've got ethereum which is too expensive for most retail to use because of gas fees but once each scalability you know once the eth consensus upgrade happens you know, we can expect that to largely be mitigated, but not solved. And protocols that back interoperability with Ethereum are the ones that are going to be successful. Whereas protocols that just boast scalability, you know, with Solana, when it had its, you know, when the system shut down for eight hours last year, and there was that whole hiccup, the system was printing 710,000 transactions per second before it crashed. Like that level of scalability we're not there yet in the technology that it's not, it shouldn't be happening at that rate. And that just shows how, 
you know, risky it is. And, you know, because of that intense level of scalability, it's an obvious investment. If I was a VC, I would obviously buy it. Ethereum's broken. We need a scalable solution. Here's Solana printing multiples on multiples on multiples, the amount of transactions per second than Ethereum is. So yes, it has become a very centralized project when it looks at when you look at VC backing and general investment. But that all being said, you know, Solana has the potential to be the backbone of GameFi. It has the potential to be, you know, the the uh, backbone of an an affordable NFT marketplace, and it has shown that. But it's all just happened too quickly, yeah, and maybe. because of that, it's it's highlighted the issues with the network. And I mean, again. You've got a massive team that's still keeping it in beta, so-called. Just, just yeah. to add on that, I mean, John T used the word potential there, right? And I think that's that's exactly it. You know, we're going from, we're rotating from potential to uh, value. Yeah. Things which are working now, things which have use case now. Um, I mean, yeah. I, I, look at, I look at Terra Luna. That has value, that has use case, that's banking the bankless. It's no barriers to entry, it's decentralized. You know, like that for me is there, it's happening. It's got, it's, it's reaching its potential. It's not got potential, it's there. You know, you look, you look at an ecosystem like um, Ethereum, that's there, you know, it's happening. There's development, there's, there's things going. But when you have an ecosystem that's just, got a lot of promise behind it you know it's it's tricky it's very tricky yeah and i mean we've we've been we've been we've been, we've been talking about this since our prediction episode uh you know with that crypt this is the year crypto projects have to have to deliver um final question uh before we close it out luca are we heading for a cross-chain future or a multi-chain future and maybe differentiate between those cross-chain involving bridges multi-chain obviously inter in independent ecosystems that maybe have some sort of interaction but but are not nearly as much as in a cross-chain future given this whole given the backdrop of this whole wormhole incident i would put my money on a multi-chain future um to be honest, like I think we will have separate ecosystems. There will be more risk taking assets from one to the other, um, at least for the foreseeable future. Perfect. You you heard you heard it uh, from the wizards wandering around Web three. Q and Luca, thanks so much for a great show, boys. Uh, we'll see everyone back for episode fourteen. Um, be safe out there. Watch out when you when your tokens are wrapped up in DeFi, um, and uh, yeah, keep uh, keep degening, keep doing your thing, and uh, listen to Q. <laughs> <laughs> Value only, <laughs> um, and otherwise you'll be working at McDonald's, like uh, <laughs> a lot of people a lot of people have found. Q, what was the thing? What was the thing you sent on the group about McDonald's? Sorry, I, I had to add this in before. Uh, did we mute him? No. There we go. Sorry, guys. I there could is. unmute myself for some reason. I was like, <laughs> sorry, that might that might have been me. That might have been me. Apologies. I thought you, thought you muted me, bro. <laughs> yeah, bro, because you um, like uh, you like uh, killing a car in the background there. 
It's noisy. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. What was the what was the McDonald's meme? So so basically at the bottom of the wick dip on the twenty fourth of Jan, McDonald's tweets, How are you doing people who run crypto Twitter accounts? And Matthew Highlander, a Twitter a Twitter guy, shouts, shout out to McDonald's for potentially making the Bitcoin bottom. And McDonald's replies in a retweet saying, Is it because I said wag me? <laughs> Well, look, there, oh, there, you, there you go. McDonald's has job offerings if you get wrecked in crypto. So be careful, people. Uh, from, from myself and the wizards wandering around Web3, we'll see everyone for episode 14 next week. Stay safe out there. Bye, everyone.